Let's turn now to Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 23. But before we begin, allow me to pray for our time this evening. Dear God in heaven, thank you that we get to gather again in your name and hear your word and sing your praise. Once again, we do not deserve to be here. We do not deserve to be your people at all, and we do not deserve to hear your word of grace that shapes us and causes us to grow and even gives us assurance of salvation. We do not deserve this, but we thank you for it. We thank you for this moment that we have. We pray that we would grow through it. Amen. So we live in a Christian culture of winsomeness these days. You've got to be delicate. You've got to be kind. And this Christian culture of winsomeness is always rebuking our lack of winsomeness and our lack of Christ-likeness. They're always telling us, why don't you look to Jesus and act more like Christ? Can't you see how welcoming He is to sinners even brazen sinners. Why can't you be more like Christ in how He treats homosexuality? Jesus allowed people to come just as they are. Why don't you? As if Jesus allowed people to come just as they are without demanding repentance at all. It's, it's curious to me, it's curious to me by this question, why can't you look more like Christ? when I want to ask them an equally important question back. Are you listening to what Christ says? Are you listening to what Christ describes a disciple as? Are you willing to look to Jesus? Who exactly is a believer? What does a Christian look like? Well, we should go to Christ Himself. We should ask Him, what does it mean to follow You, Lord? I'm not interested in anyone's opinions about what a Christian looks like. I'm interested in Your Word. Such people that like to ask questions of what would Jesus do makes me suspicious that they don't really care about what Jesus would do or say but they just want to take his name and spout their own opinions. Because when Jesus speaks about what a Christian is like, he speaks clearly and boldly and convictingly. Here's my contention for you this evening. We should define, we should describe a disciple as Christ would. We, we should determine in our minds, we are going to say a Christian is what Christ calls them to be. Not what we want them to be, not what we think they should be, but what Christ would call them to be. A Christian or a disciple is not just someone who has turned over a new leaf in their life. They are not someone who has just simply become spiritual. They are not someone who has either grown up in the church or is religious. They are not someone who claims to love everyone unconditionally. They are not someone or a group of someones who have on the outside of their gathering place a sign that says, all are welcome. And they're not even someone necessarily who claims to have new life, who claims to have joy, who claims to have spiritual assurance, or even claims to have a transformed heart. That's not what Jesus would say totally. I have a surprise for you this evening to those who are willing to listen to Jesus, though. If you are tonight willing to listen to how Christ defines and describes discipleship, you have a delightful surprise in store for you. Because you'll see, when you seek a definition of what it means to be a Christian according to Jesus, 
When you come to Him on His terms and when you come to Him in His way, you will discover that you've actually found what you're looking for the entire time. You will find that joy and that peace and that life and that assurance and that transformation that you have been searching for. But you have to come to Jesus on His terms and in His way. That is what produces those fruits. And that is what produces true Christian assurance as well. Well, can that be true? Is that a true statement? That's my thesis. Let me prove it to you or attempt to prove it to you. Once again, turn to Luke 9 if you haven't already. Luke 9, 23. <coughs> um, both this sermon and the sermon this morning, I preached in youth ministry last fall. We went through a assurance of salvation series where basically the ongoing argument is a genuine discipleship, genuine pursuit of Christ produces assurance in your life. When you follow Jesus as he calls you to follow him, assurance of salvation will follow. Now Luke 9, that we're, we're, where we are right now, is of course one of those famous count the cost passages in Luke's gospel. This is how Jesus talks to people though who want to follow him. And as we learn of how Jesus defines discipleship, we have a glorious surprise for those who are willing to follow him on his terms and in his way. But we'll have to wait for that. First off, just a little bit of context here. This is, of course, the end of Luke's section concerning the person of Christ. The first half of Luke's gospel is about the person of Christ. He is the perfect man, the complete package. All you need from God from A to Z, so to speak. He is sufficient for life's worst-case scenarios. You follow him, and you have everything you need. You have the Son of God himself. But, as we will see here, he is not someone who is always easy to follow. This is actually the key bridge in Luke's gospel, where we are going to see Luke move from showing us, in the first half of the gospel, who Christ is to where he is headed what is his purpose? That is where we're at in Luke's gospel. Jesus is beginning to transition from showing us his glory to moving towards Jerusalem. Nine, Luke 9, 51, all the way through 1944 is the famous Luke section where Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem and he's describing his purpose and he's also defining what a true disciple is and his basic question for his disciples and for us tonight is will you follow me so are you ready for tonight as we define discipleship also according to jesus here it is uh, what we're going to do just want to make a few points about how jesus defines discipleship uh, number one Number one, self-denial is the definition of true discipleship. Self-denial is the definition of true discipleship. If you are truly a follower of Christ, it means self-denial is at work in your heart and in your life and in your mind. Luke 9.23 says, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Did you see those three terms? Did you see those? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Those are all essentially saying the same thing. They're all essentially saying, if you are going to come after Christ, you have to deny yourself. That's what it means to take up your cross. That's what it means to follow Christ. You're denying yourself and you're following Him. But before we get into those terms even, notice, who is Jesus talking to here? Who is He talking to? He is 
saying this to them all. This is not a call for the spiritual specials. This is not for the supers. This is not for the extraordinary elites. This is not a call for the church leaders or elders or shepherds. This is to all who would follow Jesus. This is how Jesus speaks to anyone and to all who would come after him. And notice also, Jesus apparently isn't after just some. Jesus isn't after just the special ones. Jesus isn't after just the super ones spiritually, the elites. Notice, he also invites all to follow him. The big ones and the short ones. Anyone who wills is welcome to come and follow Jesus. Young people, you can follow Jesus. Old people, you can follow Jesus. All who will can follow Jesus. You are welcome to come. Matter of fact, your problem isn't just how sinful you are. That is your problem. But it's also your will to come, isn't it? It's not just your sin that separates you from God. It's also your will to follow God. Your sin separates you from God, yes. But did you know that your will separates you from the Savior who is the solution to your sin as well? Because all can find and follow Jesus unto salvation. Not just the special ones, not just the older ones, not just the privileged ones, but all. Jesus calls all. What does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus goes on. He, he uses this strong term, deny, deny yourself. And you probably know what it means. It means to renounce something. It means to refuse something. It means to disassociate from something. You, you disown or you, you deny. You, you may deny someone entrance you may say to someone you do not belong here i deny you matter of fact jesus will frequently in the gospel deny people he will he will say i deny you to false disciples he says you do not belong with me because you are not coming to me on my terms. So that's what we do with deny. We, we deny. We, re, we renounce. We refuse entrance. We disassociate from. But notice, who's the object of this denial? You deny yourself. This is definitional Christianity, actually, if you think about it. To be Christ's disciple means you call Him Lord. It means you refuse your will. It means you refuse your desires. It means you renounce the throne of your life. You renounce sovereignty. It means you disassociate from yourself in such a way. You do not identify with any identity other than this. I belong to Christ and I follow Him alone. And to be Christ's disciple also means you renounce something else. You not just renounce your will, but you also renounce the works of your own righteousness before God to earn you a place before Christ. This might seem veiled to you here in Luke 9.23. Maybe you suspect, is Christ really saying that? But isn't Jesus truly describing faith in this way? Faith alone? You come to Jesus in faith and you deny lordship of your life and you deny any other righteousness that you bring before Him. You have to deny it all. You have to deny yourself to follow Christ. You don't come to Christ with your own plans for your life. You don't come to Christ with your own will for your life. You don't come to Christ also with your own good works to earn you a place 
in the kingdom of heaven. You deny yourself to come and follow Christ. True disciples don't say, they don't come to Jesus and say, look at all the good works that I did to bring myself here. That is what a Pharisee says. No, a true disciple says, look at all Christ's works that He has done to bring me here. I am His forever. A disciple affirms Christ's will and denies their own righteousness. And both of these things are what you're doing when you are denying yourself. This is hard. MacArthur says that's what makes the narrow way so narrow. You have to deny so much. Can't be a follower of Christ and rely or lean into your way or your works. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. One more comment. Self-denial in this way isn't going to be easy and it's not going to be natural. Self-denial is not going to be easy or natural. Look at Jesus' illustration to follow Him. You have to deny yourself. And what does that mean? The next word we see under deny yourself, it's take up your cross. You have to become a doomed man in the eyes of all. To take up your cross is to publicly and visibly be under the punishment of the Roman government. Unbelievers should look at your life in some sense and say, man, I'm glad I'm not him. Why would they do that? That is what it looks like to follow Christ. It's not easy. It's not natural. Why would you submit the lordship of your life to Christ? Why would you not boast in anything you have done before God? That is how every other religion gets by. That's how it works. That's how they make money. How can you deny good works to get you into heaven? It's not easy. It's not natural to deny yourself. And notice also here, and it's only in Luke's Gospel, we have this word daily. You must deny yourself daily. Now this is not to say that you should call every little inconvenience in your life your daily cross. No, what is this saying? To deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow Him. You have to have a will so denied daily that you are willing to suffer the worst to follow Christ. Even that day, You say, today, maybe this very evening perhaps, I am holding fast to Christ's will, to Christ's righteousness more than my own. You have to say, I am firmly holding fast to His righteousness, even in the face of my failures and my guilt over my sin. And you have to say, I am firmly holding fast in His will, even in the face of my sinful desires. You must do this daily, continually, if you will be Christ's disciples. It's not easy. It's not natural. This daily determination actually, though, helps you in everything, if you think about it. Doesn't this put all of your life into perspective? No, your parents, your co-worker, your boss, they aren't your daily cross. But you say, hey, if I am willing to die for Christ, how much more am I willing to live for Him in this moment? That's true discipleship. By, self, by definition, it's self-denial. But are you willing to follow Christ like that? That's according to Jesus. But He has more to say. Just before we jump to our next point, notice something. Verse 23 is Jesus' main statement. His primary definition of discipleship. But then notice verse 24. It starts out with this word for. And then verse 25 starts out with this word for. And then verse 26 starts out with this word for. What's going on there? Jesus is making a main argument with supporting statements. What is he saying? Verse 23 is Jesus' main primary definition of discipleship. And then he attaches to this motives and incentives. This is why you should follow me denying yourself like that. It's not easy. It's not natural to be Christ's disciple 
And here Christ says, but this is why you deny yourself. One commentator writes, Jesus doesn't just give severe demands, he does. He also supports them with solid encouragements. Remember that surprise I was telling you about. Here's one of them. Uh, Another thing we could say about how Jesus defines discipleship then is is not only that discipleship is defined by uh, denying yourself, but also, secondly, this kind of discipleship is necessary for salvation. Denying yourself is necessary to hold on to salvation. Now here's here's a thought for you to simmer on and think about and be surprised by? Perhaps we do people a disservice in evangelism when we do one of two things. Perhaps, number one, we don't warn them enough about what following Jesus really means. Perhaps we don't truly call them to count the cost to follow Jesus now, let me play a little bit, right? It's easy in, in one way to be an evangelist. It, it's very easy to convince people that they don't want to go to hell. It's not very hard for me at all to convince someone that Jesus is good news. But where it becomes difficult is when I begin to ask them a question. This is when I, when I see the creeping resistance enter into the hearers. When I say things like this, but yes, but are you ready to deny yourself to follow him in this way? That's when the energy for the gospel shuts down outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. But perhaps also we do them a disservice in another way. Perhaps we don't warn people enough about the danger of waiting, the danger of lingering, the danger of rejecting Jesus as Lord. We've got to tell them to count the cost, but at the same time, we've got to tell them, count the cost about waiting, about delaying. When someone says, oh, that's great, Let me think about it for a while. Maybe we should add, count the cost. Consider the danger of lingering outside of salvation. Jesus here, in my mind, says, count the cost if you're going to follow me. But he also says, but also count the cost if you refuse to follow me. He doesn't want people to reject him at all. You need to count the cost if you will, and you need to count the cost if you won't. This morning in youth ministry, Jaron Wentworth was giving our students a message on the motivations of evangelism, and he commented on the fact that the, the gospel is actually a command of God. Repentance is commanded by God. God demands sinners repent. God isn't saying, think about it for a while. He is commanding a response. And we should be cautioning people about the danger of lingering. Notice what Jesus says himself in verse 24. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, if you do not follow me, you lose. You don't even just lose. You destroy yourself. You forfeit your soul. You damage irreparably. That's what lose means. You'll miss. If If you deny me, if you do not follow me, you will miss the very thing that you were after all along. You will lose your life. Ironically, if you do not forfeit yourself, you forfeit yourself. That's what he's saying. Don't ignore me. 
Don't treat me lightly. I am of unspeakable value. Treat me with significance. Treat this gospel message, this moment that you have received today, as perhaps your last opportunity. Do not let the hour pass by where you think on Jesus. I am of unspeakable value. Do do you see this? Do you see the surprising assertion that Jesus is making even here? Do Do you feel the incredible implication about what he says about himself? Well, first off, think about this. Verse 25, right? You can gain a whole lot of things through self seeking, it seems to be suggesting. Matter of fact, the world often can easily fool us by how easy it is to get things through self-seeking. The world has a lot of glitter, a lot of sparkle, a lot of shine, and it seems as though we can gain a lot of things through self-seeking, and Jesus maybe goes down this route a little bit of saying that. The promise of the world makes things seem themselves as satisfying in and of themselves, and It appears that the best way to find these things is through self-seeking. But get this, nothing, nothing, nothing you could possibly gain in all of the world stacked on top of each other and pulled together is more valuable than Christ Jesus. Nothing you could possibly gain is worth the inestimable value of your soul and saving it in Christ Jesus' name. Think about it. Even the greatest treasure possible to find, if you could find it, if you were Nick Cage, national treasure, finding the greatest treasure ever. Even that treasure isn't more valuable than Jesus. That's what he's saying. Even if, look at what he says, even if you could gain all the world, a reward that is inconceivable, is it not? Even if you could gain all the world, Jesus says that treasure wouldn't be worth the cost of giving up your soul. We give our hearts too ignorantly, too foolishly, too quickly to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is not worth the price. Why does Jesus say this? Well, because he is that valuable. There's, there's, a, there's a flip side to this as well. Even if you suffer the worst catastrophes imaginable in this life, a, a painful, searing, lifelong illness, or you suffer financial disaster, or if you suffer rejection of humiliation from family or friends, even if you experience torture or starvation or suffocation, all of that is a mere pinprick compared to the pain of losing your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. Those who endure suffering for Jesus do so because their eyes are fixed ahead. Their eyes see Jesus as He truly is in His value to them and to their soul, and nothing is more valuable than Jesus. I wonder this evening, is your soul that valuable to you? Is all the hurt and pains of this life placed into perspective by your relationship with Christ to you? Are the anxieties without Christ greater in your eyes than the anxieties you have with Him? Can can you say with Job, though He slay me, yet I will hope in Him? I don't always understand, you say to yourself, I don't always understand the pain I endure for following Christ, but I trust Him and I value Him nonetheless. Have you found that treasure, that great treasure, that joy in Christ 
and that eternal security of the soul that comes through being found in Christ. How do you lose your soul? Well, it's simple. You just do the opposite. Instead of denying yourself, you deny Jesus. Instead of following Jesus, you follow yourself to hell. That's what you do. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's basically saying, if you don't follow me like this, if you don't deny yourself, forfeit yourself, you don't have me. You don't have salvation at all. You have chosen, rather, to lose your life, to forfeit your life in exchange for saving yourself, in exchange for preferring yourself. If you trust in your works before God, if you just say to yourself, I'm just going to try harder to please God, if you just seek to turn over more and more leaves in your life, if you just try to get more spiritual, what do you not get? You don't get Jesus because you're not following Him the way He calls you to. You don't get Jesus, you don't get the gospel, and you don't get salvation of your soul. If you insist on being the Lord of your life, you don't get Jesus, you don't get the gospel, and you don't get the salvation of your soul. Once again, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He is saying, I am to be treasured more than anything else in your life if you will follow me. But Jesus has more incentives for following him, more incentives for self-denial. Not only do we see that this kind of discipleship is necessary for salvation, but we also see that this kind of discipleship, this self-denying kind, is the demonstration of true faith. Self-denial of this type, Jesus goes, goes on and on today to tell us, is the telltale fruit of true, genuine discipleship, true saving faith. This is the very evidence of faith that Jesus points to to show that faith is real. It's proof you are following Him for real. Look at the horror of the life, for example, the soul that is not demonstrating this kind of faith. Verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of Me and My words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and the Holy Ones. To not deny Christ, But to pursue yourself is to basically say, I am ashamed of Christ. Ashamed means, it's another way of saying you refuse to deny yourself. It means you choose to reject Christ. It means you choose to distance yourself from Him. It means you choose to cast Him far from you. It means you choose to fear association with Him. And Jesus says, this opposite of self-denial is the proof of unbelief. This is the evidence he'll point to on the judgment day that you were never truly a believer in the saving message of the gospel. That you were ashamed of him. That you denied him. True believers, though, are not ashamed of Jesus. They're not ashamed of to follow Christ. How? Why? Why? You remain unashamed of Christ continually because you continually know that He was not ashamed of you and to stand in your place. How? You remain unashamed of Christ because of the power of God that helps you stand. Look, just real quick, turn over to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, of course, in 2 Timothy is in a very difficult place, likely near um, his own execution, and he is urging Timothy to remain faithful in the gospel and not turn away and deny Christ in shame. 
to be unashamed for Christ. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7? He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Or jump down to verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. How do you remain unashamed even when horrific tragedy comes in your life? By the power of God. Why? Because He has not been ashamed of you. That's the true disciple. That's the true believer. But if you continually and with certainty distance yourself from Christ and are ashamed of Him, Jesus, it says, will be ashamed of you. This is a horrifying picture. He will distance Himself from you. He will reject you. He will cast you far from you. He will deny you access to Him. He will deny you. Matthew 25, 31 describes the sheep and the goat judgment, which is a a judgment for Israel. But there are many sobering words here, and and the the picture of Jesus is frightening here. Jesus' final statement to the goats in that scene is, you denied me. You didn't do it to me. You didn't live for me. Therefore, I deny you. Now, a question here. There's young people here. Can a young person have assurance? Can a young believer have real assurance of salvation? The short answer, I would say, and I always tell students, is yes. You actually can have assurance of salvation for that future day. In fact, 1 John promises that love casts out fear of that day. What is that love that he's talking about? It is God's love. It is knowing God's love and loving Him in return that results in love for the brothers. That casts out fear for that day. You can even now know that love and as a result see that love work out in your own person. And that brings beautiful assurance even to the younger faiths. Essentially, First John's argument is you know you love God when you love the brothers, when you love others. Because that shows that you have learned the love of God towards you. That reveals true knowledge of the Gospel. If you want to see fruit that demonstrates faith, if you want assurance for salvation, though, you must begin with Jesus' definition of what it means to be a disciple. Turning back to Luke 9, 23, you must begin in verse 23 if you want true fruit that gives you true assurance of salvation. You must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow Him. You must totally trust in His work on your behalf. You must totally submit your will to His will. Not perfectly, but persistently. And for young Christians, it can be found in answering the following question today. Who will you follow today? Who will you follow today? Will you deny yourself today? I love J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Luke. He writes, no denial, no saving grace. Or we could interpret it, no denial, no sure assurance of saving grace. This leads to Jesus' final incentive. Final incentive statement for the type of discipleship he's after, the self-denying kind. By the way, this same definition of discipleship, before we get to the final incentive, the same definition of discipleship, that is, deny yourself and follow me, is in each of the Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
They all have something very similar to say. This very incident happens in the same time, every place in the gospel. Jesus is always recorded um, saying it in this same way, and they all include the very same ending that we're going to land with. They all begin with the same demand, as we see in Luke 9.23. They all continue with an encouragement or incentives, as we see in verses 24 through 25. And they then also attach a sobering warning, as we've seen in verse 26 of chapter 9. And then they all have this assurance of the disciple the, the assurance to those who will follow Jesus that way. A final assurance. And we see this in chapter 9, verse 27. Here's where I would say one more surprise awaits for us. This, this final incentive, Jesus says this, this kind of discipleship, the self-denying kind, this kind of discipleship is the path to true, genuine assurance. When you follow Jesus this way, this is what produces assurance of salvation. This is how you know you are truly saved. But it's interesting. Because look at what he says in verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus ends this count-the-cost sermon with an incredible encouragement to disciples. There are some of you who are going to see glorious riches about me and about the kingdom of God, which will fuel your faith, encourage your obedience, and give you assurance. Now, I believe there is an encouragement for us here. This is to those disciples, and and we have to work a little bit to understand this, but I I think it's worth it because if we understand what Jesus is saying to the disciples, we will also understand what he is saying to us as well. The simple point is here, following Jesus with a self-denying attitude will lead you to increasing glorious glimpses of him, which will increase your faith, which will strengthen your obedience. And as your obedience is strengthened, your assurance is strengthened. As your love for Christ is strengthened, your desire to follow Him is encouraged. And as you follow Him better and better in life, your assurance of salvation grows. Because the closer you follow Jesus, the more of Him you see. And the glories of His person will be revealed to you the greater, the greater your assurance of salvation will be. Let's unpack this for one moment. Notice verse 27 is referring to something. Some of you, Jesus says, are standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. First off, what event is Jesus predicting here? And then secondly, what would Uh, these events or this event mean for the disciples that Jesus is talking about. First off, what is this event? This is, of course, referring in all of the Gospels, I am convinced, to the event that immediately follows the transfiguration. You see it there in verse 28. Uh, The transfiguration is an intentional act on Jesus' part. This is the kingdom of God in a glimpse. This is the kingdom of God in a snapshot. This is the kingdom of God, the trailer before the movie that you're watching that makes you actually not want to watch the movie you're watching, but makes you kind of want to watch that movie more because that movie looks more interesting. It's, it's a commercial for another show that you're not watching right now that I really wish that was on right now. It's, it's a glorious glimpse of something in the future that you truly want. Now, There are reasons for seeing it as the transfiguration. Number one, transfiguration is next. That's easy. Number two, Jesus says, some, some of you, which is what we see happen. He only brings Peter, James, and John with him, three disciples. That's not all. So this can't be referring to the resurrection. This can't be referring to some sort of future kingdom picture. This can't be referring to the church age if it's only those three disciples that are going to see this event. 
And then he also says, some of you will not taste death until you do this. So this, this has to happen before they die. And once again, it's only a few of them, so it can't be something after the resurrection. And also we should point out that 9.28 tightly connects these two events together. It says, after eight days. Matter of fact, all of the Gospels closely connect this final piece of Jesus' Count the Cost sermon with the transfiguration. Interpretation, the the transfiguration is proof that the Old Testament promises are going to be fulfilled in Christ. It pictures Jesus as the one that the Old Testament prophets pointed to. It's basically saying to these disciples that follow him, this is truly the one. Matter of fact, a voice speaks to these disciples out of the cloud in verse 35 and says, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. This event is supposed to show the glorious pictures of the coming kingdom, but it's primarily to focus their attention on Jesus. He's the One, but listen to what He is saying. This kingdom is not coming as you think. But the best, obviously, reason for viewing this as the transfiguration is, of course, that is the Apostle Peter's view, so I'll, I'll take that. Second uh, Peter 1, 16-18, Peter essentially describes all the things that he saw on the mountain, and he describes it in such a way that it was revealing Christ's true nature and who he would be at his coming. Peter says this, For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. Notice this. Some of the disciples saw Jesus' coming kingdom glory on that mountain. And that led them to strengthen faith in Christ Jesus. That, of course, leads to, naturally, the purpose. What is the purpose of this event in the life of these disciples? Once again, I've already said it. It's to reveal Christ's glory. It's to prove that He is valuable, supremely valuable. He is worth listening to. He is worth following. And then strengthen confidence in Christ's person and in His promises. Even when things get hard, He is more valuable. Basic principle, the longer you follow Christ, the more of His glories you see, and the more of His glories you see, the more precious He becomes to you, and the more precious He comes to you, the more you rejoice in obeying Him and believing in Him and following Him, and the more you do that, the more assurance of salvation you have in your life from the fruits of obedience. True fruits and true assurance. But all of this depends on coming to Jesus on His terms, His way, defining discipleship according to Jesus. Not according to you, not according to your way, but according to Jesus' way. Assurance doesn't come from some sort of subjective feeling. It comes from listening to Christ and following Him in faith. It comes from trusting in His unshakable Word and putting your life on it. Living according to it. It's not from some man-made expression or some religious performance. It is from Jesus and fixing your heart and your mind on Him. True discipleship leans on Christ and assurance flows out of that dependence. So, simply, how does, how does assurance grow? How do you grow assurance in your life? Well, from coming to Jesus His way and leaning into Jesus in all of His riches, you begin following Jesus His way. 
That is how assurance grows. It means treasuring Christ's righteousness above all else. That is the starter fuel of obedience that fuels assurance. It means valuing Christ above all other things in your heart and your will and your mind. That is the starter fuel of obedience which produces assurance. You begin following Christ His way and you keep on following Christ His way. The growth of holiness in your life is the production and the growth and the increase of assurance in your life. Once again, Ryle says, no denial, no assurance of saving grace. Do you see the contrast here? For those of you that were here this morning, do you see the contrast here between discipleship according to Jesus and discipleship according to Judas? It's stark. It's sharp. It's very different. With Jesus, self-denial is the starter fluid of assurance. But with Judas, we see self-preservation is the starter fluid of what? Rejection denial, and death. It all begins where you begin. And that is where assurance comes from. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the blessedness of this place and of this space and this text that we can even turn to and see the glories of your person and rejoice that you call us all, anyone who would come to come, we rejoice in the fact that we do, not, we do not come by our righteousness. We rejoice in the fact that we do not come with our will. For our will is burdensome, but yours is easy and yours is light. We rejoice that we get to come close to You and with trembling hands stand in Your righteousness. For You are more valuable than all the earth put together, stacked on top of itself. Help us to grow in our love. Help us to grow in our affection. Continue to develop obedience that is fueled from faith. And bless us with assurance and joy that comes from that. Amen.